All right, let's take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 15. That sounds like we're progressing, doesn't it? Moving quickly here. Revelation chapter 15. We're going to look tonight at the shortest, um, the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. And it is a prelude to Armageddon. It's kind of the prologue, the introductory phase, the, the momentary silence before Revelation moves into Armageddon. How many of you have ever seen the movie Family Man with Nicolas Cage? Anybody ever seen that movie? It's a movie that comes on around Christmas time now. It's kind of become a movie that NBC shows sometimes. And it's a movie about a guy who has kind of shown his life. Um, he, he's a rich, successful, single man, but he's shown his life how it could have been if he would have chosen love instead of his career. The life he had would have had his wife who truly loved him, children who respected him, and delighted in playing with him, friends who were genuinely involved in his life. And the beauty of that life exposes his loneliness and emptiness. Well, in chapter 15 of the book of Revelation, what the writer John is going to do is to reveal to believers the life that they will have if they persevere, if they're believers in God, in truth. The life that they'll have when the end comes. Someone has written about what we're going to see in just a moment. Let me invite you to imagine something better than winning the Heisman Trophy or being the MVP of the team that wins the World Series. Imagine being the doctor who discovers a cure for cancer and try to conceive of something better than that. The highest military decoration awarded by the United States government is the Medal of Honor which is bestowed by the President in the name of Congress on members of the United States Armed Forces who distinguish themselves through conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his or her life above and beyond the call of duty while engaged in action against an enemy of the United States. Now imagine something better than being honored to receive the Medal of Honor. What could be better than the Heisman Trophy, the World Series MVP, finding a cure for cancer, or winning the Medal of Honor? One day, Scripture says, the dead will be raised and the multitudes will stand before Almighty God. On that day, King Jesus will say to those who trusted Him and lived for Him, well done, good and faithful servant. And on that day, no Heisman Trophy or World Series MVP no medical or military achievement will be worth more than those simple words. Revelation chapter 15 gives us the calm before the storm of judgment. And in the midst of that, I want us to look at a few things that are there. This is a judgment that's coming that's been promised since the Old Testament. Joel 1.15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. In Zephaniah chapter 1, it says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, 
a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Malachi 4.1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. That day is coming. And Revelation chapter 15 tells us that day is almost here. But before it does, it wants to give us a quick glimpse of what the believers in Christ are doing and remind us a little bit about God. Revelation chapter 15 says this, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the last seven plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like the sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen, and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Three things I want us to see in this uh, about um, that day or Armageddon as it draws near, what's happening as Armageddon approaches. And the first thing that we see is that God's sovereignty is reaffirmed as Armageddon approaches. God's sovereignty is reaffirmed as Armageddon approaches. Now, chapter 16 is going to be when these bowls start getting poured out. And they go pretty quickly. The bowls go pretty quickly. And then the, the war comes and Armageddon happens. So this is the last moment. I, I said in the first, uh, at the 4 o'clock service, it's like the, the calm before the storm. The moment before it is unleashed. And so in that moment, in that instant, right before judgment is released, we get another picture of God's sovereignty. First of all, we learn that God is in control as Armageddon approaches. John looks up and he sees another sign in heaven. A great and marvelous sign. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more in just a minute. But he sees a sign that says God's wrath has been completed. Now that doesn't mean it has been and then the judgments come. It means that these judgments will complete God's wrath. And so what we see here is that his sovereignty, his control is reaffirmed. There's an interesting thing here because John looks up and it says that I saw another sign. He says a great and marvelous sign. Does anybody have a different translation there in verse 1 besides great and marvelous sign? They got a different word? Amazing? Wonderful is the way one does it. 
the word there means that. The, first of all, the word great there is the Greek word mega, which we I saw today that someone claimed the mega millions means great, large, super. And then it says wonderful. And the idea behind it, when I say the word wonderful, what do you think? What, what, what does wonderful mean? Beyond description? What's that? Above average, extraordinary. The, the basics of the word, if you just take it apart, it's wonderful or full of wonder. Okay? It, it means having, it means being awed. Standing in the presence of something where your only reaction is a dropped jaw and a sense of wonder. Have you ever been in that kind of moment? You ever been anywhere that you see something or you experience something and you're it's just like you don't have any words to describe. You were just in awe. Anybody have one of those moments they want to share? There you go. First time you ever saw Doc Severinsen play the trumpet. Where were you, Bill? In your house? Was he in your living room playing with you? Yeah. Driving along the California coastline. How long ago was that, Cliff? Oh, oh, not when you were 17. So y'all, y'all crazy kids going out there when you're 17 years old. No, 17 years ago. So that's a amazing. Anybody else? Anne. So there, there are moments that leave you just speechless, right? Uh, I've joked a lot about the Cardinals winning the World Series last year, but in game six last year when they um, were down in the ninth inning, I I thought, you know, it's done. That's, that's okay. It's been a good year. I'm going to stick with them to the end of this game. I'm going to hate telling Eli in the morning the Cardinals lost the World Series. I'm going to hate seeing the Holmes family that are big Rangers fans, but it's okay. And they came back and they scored, and I thought, well, we got a shot. Then the next inning, Rangers come up and score. And I thought, well, here we go again. And hit a home run. And not just, you know, they didn't just go up by one. They went up by a couple of runs. The Cardinals come back. And I think, all right, maybe we got a shot. And when David Freeze, the St. Louis native kid, strong believer in Christ, Noah's story, gets up and hits that game-winning home run, it, first of all, I was speechless because everybody else in the house was asleep and I couldn't yell. He had made the, the game losing error. The, the one supposed to cost him the game. It's just this perfect story. And you're just like, I cannot believe I'm experiencing this. Even I was in Goodlettsville. I'm there in St. Louis. But, you know, experiencing it. Nothing of that compares to what John sees. And what he sees amazes him. Its magnitude and significance is difficult to comprehend. What is about to happen will change all of history. The world will never be the same. Now, people can't use that phrase. The world will never be the same again. Literally, the world will never be the same again. John is stunned by that vision. But we have to be careful not to just think that he's stunned by something glorious because the truth is what he's stunned by is the judgment of God. 
Now, don't think he's stunned in a bad way. He's just amazed when God finally decides it's time. Sends out seven angels with seven plagues. Number seven, we all know, means what? What does number seven symbolize? Perfection, completion. He says these are the last seven plagues because, and just in case we didn't know, why are they last? It's not necessarily chronologically they're last. It's not necessarily just because these are the last ones I'm going to write about. They're last, which is the word, by the way, eschatos in the Greek, which is where the theological term eschatology comes, study of last things. They're last because they finish God's wrath. God's wrath is done in that moment. It's brought to its appropriate and climactic conclusion. They are the last and they are the worst. They are the third woe that's talked about in 11.14. The time of destruction from 11.18. The wrath of God pulled out in full strength in 14.10 and the final reaping of the earth from 14. This is it. And so as we are approaching Armageddon, what we see in these first two verses of a marvelous sign that God's wrath is about to be completed is that God is still in control. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think of when I say the word Armageddon? Final battle? Destruction? You ever heard somewhere? So let me ask you this. Is Armageddon in your mind, just as you think of it, a positive or a negative term? It's a negative term. When people say Armageddon is coming, they don't mean that. Woo! Yeah! Armageddon's coming. Everybody get ready. It's going to be a good time. Right? But what are the saints of God doing as Armageddon approaches? They're singing. And they're not singing funeral dirges, are they, Cliff? They're singing songs of praise. They're not sitting there with their arms crossed, with their mouth closed, saying, I'm just going to sit this one out. They are fully engaged in worshiping God. So not only is God's sovereignty reaffirmed as Armageddon approaches, but here's the kind of interesting thing. God's servants rejoice as Armageddon approaches. They rejoice. It says in verse 2, I saw it looked like a sea of glass. Now let me ask you a question. What's distinctive about this sea? It's got fire and it's calm. Does it say it is a sea of glass? Well, it uses those phrases, but there are two words that come before it, right? It looked like a sea of glass. Why is that important? We've talked about this before, but to the ancient mind, the most dangerous and mysterious Places on earth were the sea. The most feared animals on the earth were animals from the sea. Now, in some ways, that's still true, right? If one shark bites one person off of one coastline in America, we have shark attack 2012. Right? Everybody be careful. Don't go out in the ocean. We've got shark attacks going on. Because we can't see it. We don't know what's going on. Well, to them, the sea was very chaotic. And you think about it, even when you've been in the sea, even when the sea's calm, there's waves. And if you are on the sea without any kind of motorized transportation, you are at complete mercy of the sea. And so for these saints, 
of the Lord to be standing around a sea that looks like a sea of glass means that it is completely calm. Now, the fire thing is one of those things that scholars don't have a clue what that means. They'll give you their theories. There are some that think that that is the signs of the beast that has been defeated by the people of God. Some say that it is just a symbol of God's presence and judgment because whenever fire is used in Scripture, that's kind of what it's used for, and that the sea of glass is symbolized that the destruction and the judgment is about to come, but God is in control. He has calmed everything else. The sea of glass was first revealed in chapter 4, verse 6, and there it reflected as a function as a mirror reflecting God's glory and majesty. And here it, it symbolizes His complete control, but it also can serve as that mirror, showing His purity, holiness, separation from creation. Like I said, some scholars believe that the mingled with fire symbolizes the divine judgment that's about to be manifested. John looks and sees the saints of God gathered around, these overcomers, the victorious one, the conquerors. Because of their faith, even unto death, they defeated the Antichrist, his image, his mark, and the number of his name. They had no standing on earth, but they have standing in heaven. They stand in the majestic sea of glass, harps, joy, celebration of God in hand. God is just in honoring his faithful servants. What they lost on earth, they more than gained back in heaven. And we see them begin to sing a song. Now, whose song do they sing? Whose song? Moses and the Lamb. So what's Moses' song? Anybody want to sing that for us? Somebody asked me earlier, I said, what's Moses' song? They said, you tell us, what key is it in? I said, well, you, <laughs> you don't want me to try to sing it or find it, I can tell you that. What's Moses' song? You may know what they're talking about here. What are they talking about, Bill? When they cross the Red Sea, they get over on the other side, and in Exodus chapter 15, Moses and Miriam start to sing praises to God. And the basic premise of the song is, you've rescued us. And there's this interesting part in the middle where it says, the enemy thought they were going to win, and they were bearing down upon us, but you simply blew your breath and the water separated and the enemy was drowned. Now, it's longer than that. It's a whole chapter. But the basic premise is we were at a point when it looked like we were going to be overtaken by the enemy and you showed up and you rescued us. What's the song of the Lamb? Anybody have a clue what that is? Revelation chapter 5. The song is sung unto the Lamb. In Wayne it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and honor and wisdom and strength. But before that it says, You are worthy to open the seals. Why? Because you were slain and your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe. You rescued us. When it looked like all was hopeless, you rescued us. And in this song, that's the theme. Now, it's the song of Moses and the Lamb, not because it's an exact reproduction of the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. In fact, it's nowhere near that. 
It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb because it's a song of deliverance. You have saved us, Lord, and we are thankful. Your mighty works are worth praise. What happens that's interesting here is that John actually sees them singing a song that is a mashup of several songs from the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of a mashup song, but it's kind of become pretty popular today. There's a show on TV that really has popularized it. They take two songs and they mash them up together and they sing them. For instance, uh, one of the most popular in recent uh, last couple of years was they took a song by a, a girl named Rihanna called Umbrella, and they mashed it up with Singing in the Rain. Okay? Some of y'all remember Singing in the Rain, right? When I was growing up, Singing in the Rain was a song you did at camp. You had all kinds of weird motions to it. Head back, arms up, tongue out, all that kind of stuff. And you sang Singing in the Rain. Okay? But you mashed them up, and so you, can't, you, you tell the two distinctive songs, but they all become one song. Well, what the, John sees these people singing is kind of a mashup of all of the songs, kind of the Old Testament that are there. In fact, there are uh, parts of Deuteronomy chapter 28 in here. There are parts of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Jeremiah 10, 7, Psalm 86, 9 through 10. There's even references to places like Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 60, Micah 4, Zechariah 2, and Psalm 86 again. All in these few verses. In fact, if you look in the Greek New Testament, which I know you all do on a regular basis, you check your Greek New Testament. In the Greek New Testament, almost every one of these words is italicized, which means that it is a quote or a direct allusion from the Old Testament. So what happens is, John sees these people singing glorious songs. They're singing the greatest hits of deliverance songs from the Old Testament. It's like they've gotten the list and they're just reminding people with each line of a great deliverance song from the past. So great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the angels. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. We praise God first for the fact that He is great and marvelous. That He is just and true. We praise Him for His works and for His ways. Lord God Almighty. Then we praise Him for His name and His nature. For you alone are worthy. It tells us that fear and glory are the proper responses and light of who God is. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that we are to fear and bring glory unto God. Unto His name that connotes all that God is in His person, in His character, in His activity. God is to be feared and glorified because He is great, marvelous, just, true. Holy, the Lord, the Almighty, the King. His name and His nature are unlike anyone else. They are truly worthy to be praised. You alone are holy. But we also praise Him for His works and His wisdom. How many of the nations are going to come and admit that He's right? All, right? 
Not some, not a few, not a couple, but all. Shall come and ascribe worth and value and honor. No one else is worthy of that. His judgments, His righteous acts have been revealed. It means the day will come when all people will acknowledge that God's wrath, which is about to be poured out. Now think about this. They're going to acknowledge that the wrath of God that is about to be poured out is deserved, righteous, and perfectly designed to achieve His holy purposes. It should be noted that the saints in heaven do not sing about their own victory over the beast, even though the Bible says they were ones that helped overcome the beast. But they sing about God's glory, sovereignty, and justice. In these two verses, the word you or your, referring to God, occurs seven times. It's an amazing bringing together of praise and worship. So we see that God's sovereignty is reaffirmed. We see that God's people are ready. They're excited about it. Here's the last thing. God's sanctuary is ready as Armageddon approaches. Verse 5 through 8 reveal the third and final scene of the chapter. The final act before the bold judgments are poured out. John's attention is drawn away from the praises of the redeemed before the Lord. And we see two important things before it closes out. First of all, we see that these angels are serving the purposes of God. And the purposes of God involve judgment. Verses 5 through 7 start with after these things. It's after the vision of those celebrating. Then it says, I looked into heaven and the temple, the tabernacle of the testimony. They're talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness where inside the tabernacle in the wilderness there were two tables of testimony. Does anybody know what were on those two tables of testimony? On one was the Ark of the Covenant and on the other were the tablets from Moses on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. It was considered um, a very holy place. It was the place where God dwelled at the intersection of those two, where His holy presence was made known. John saw the veil of the Holy of Holies part, and out of the inner sanctuary of the temple appeared seven angels who had been selected to administer God's bold judgments. They are holding the seven plagues, plagues clothed in white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. White linen, symbolic of the purity of the angels, their righteous character, the righteous act of God in pouring out His wrath on the earth, the golden girdle. Doesn't that sound like a fun thing? The golden girdle. You don't see those in stores too often anymore. The golden girdle held the linen garment in place when the priest ministered in the temple. Gold was symbolic of God's riches, beauties, greatness, and majesty. Christ wore the same apparel when He appeared in chapter 1, verse 13. And it's a reminder that these are servants of God and servants of Christ. In chapter 4, we had these four living creatures. And they appear again in chapter 15. And they carefully give to the seven angels seven bowls full of wrath. 
By the way, these guardians of the heavenly throne appear seven times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 19. We've seen six of the seven. Their assignment on this occasion is ominous and foreboding. God's anger, His wrath, His last judgments on earth are carefully and reverently passed to the seven messengers of destruction. There is no doubt that what they are assigned will come to pass. It comes from the God who lives forever and ever. The Lord is everlasting. He will send His divine judgment on His time, and that time has come. In verse 8 it says, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Having the boys like I do right now, I got this image, and I don't mean it to be sacrilegious at all or to make light of this, but to me, I see this image of God stepping towards the front of the temple and basically saying, the time has come, and don't any of you get back in here until the job is over. My boys like to play outside. But when they play outside, they always, over an hour and a half period, get out much more than they want to clean up when it's time to come in. I know you all never experienced that with your kids, but with mine there are there are shovels and pails and baseball bats and baseballs and basketballs and bicycles and bicycle helmets. And uh, um, we get those little Popeye's things. They're Popeye's wrappers. They're just, you know, what's outside, Daddy? What does it matter? And I'll say something like, don't come back in this house till you get everything cleaned up. Now, they'll try to come back in, and they're still, don't come back in this house. Everything's cleaned up. Well, God, it says in Scripture here, His glory fills the temple and He says, nobody can enter until when? Until everything's cleaned up. Until it's done. When God made a covenant with Abraham, He passed through the divided pieces of the sacrifice in the smoking furnace and a burning lamp. When Moses received God's law on Mount Sinai, God revealed His holiness with fire and smoke. After Israel placed the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, God's presence was symbolized with smoke and fire. In Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord filled the holy place in the form of a cloud. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe fills the temple. It's an ongoing reminder of God's holiness that God fills up the holy place. God's glory is always manifested during times of judgment. Smoke from God's glory made entering the temple impossible until His seething indignation was poured out. Imagine the sign to the ungodly people on earth who chose to shun the worship of a holy God to follow a beast. The seven angels stand ready, awaiting the final signal to pour out God's wrath. That signal is about to be given. In fact, it starts in one verse. We're going to get there next week. One day, God's wrath is going to come. One day, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus because of what He did for sinners. One day, God's wrath will be poured out on sinners because of what they did for Jesus. 
when that day comes, no one or no thing will be able to stay the hand of God's judgment. He will no longer stand knocking on the door of a human heart. He would rather knock down the door separating heaven from earth as he floods the world with his final judgment. It will truly be, as Hebrews 10 says, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And throughout Revelation, what's interesting is, even knowing the destruction and the wrath that is to come, John will end this book with the words, Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now we're not quite there, but we're getting closer. But the point is, when God's wrath comes, those of us who are believers will say that we are glad that the Lord has been vindicated and that righteousness has been restored. Praise be to God for the sacrifice that was made where we weren't judged eternally for our own 